This is God's word. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. As far as we read from God's word, in the lifetime of Jesus, it was not just the 12 disciples in a small band who were called to follow Jesus. On the contrary, there was a large and growing group of people called to follow Jesus and to serve him, including these 72 that we see here in verse 1 of Luke chapter 10. There's already a similarity with the time of the Reformation. Uh, The Lord did not just call a handful of prominent reformers whose names we have come to know, such as Wycliffe and Huss, Knox and Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, Zwingli and Tyndale. On the contrary, there were a lot more people, all prompted by the Lord to make the Reformation happen. So we ask ourselves uh, from this uh, passage and from a reflection on the Reformation and the life of Wycliffe, who we'll study tonight, what's the centrality of the message? And the main point here is, ask the Lord to send out workers. In other words, missions. And our question is why. But first to illustrate, a famous artist was commissioned to paint a picture of a dying church. What would you paint if you were trying to paint a picture of a dying church? A lot of people expected that he would paint a small, humble congregation in a dilapidated building just dying out. Instead, he painted a stately edifice, a magnificent church building, fancy pulpit, magnificent windows, and near the door he painted an offering box marked missions. And the contribution slot to the box was blocked with cobwebs. That was the artist's rendition of a dying church, not out for missions anymore. Ask the Lord to send out workers is our main point Why? We answer in three ways, because only the Lord sends workers the correct way, verses 1 to 4. Only the Lord can give the needed discernment, verses 5 to 15. And the one they hear or reject is not us, but the Lord, verse 16. 
Starting right away here in verse 1, it's clear the Lord is the one who takes responsibility for sending out his workers. It's his task. And there's wisdom in how Jesus then constructed it, sent them ahead of him two by two. Literally, the word is duo. They were a duo, a team. Not solo, not larger teams, but two. Why? Because in an important task, a partner is needed, and both are under authority. Sometimes both partners go together. Uh, Alone, one may not have the words, or the other might not have the boldness. Other times, one partner goes, and the other partner supports, or sends in some way, but they're still a team, both needing one another. The Lord sent them together. Sometimes as you think down through the stories of of Reformation, the stories of missions, the stories of church history, you can find that a person was sent out or intended to complete a task and wasn't able to do it, and it turns out years later their child is able to complete that task. Sometimes it's a surprise partnership, a parent and a child, for example, The Lord is the one that sets up these partnerships, these duos. So verse 2, the Lord tells us it's a big job to bring in all the people that the Lord is calling to himself worldwide. And what's more, the job is urgently needing to be done. However, the laborers are few, he says in verse 2, meaning that from the start, there was a shortage of fellow workers that was to be expected. And we find that down to today, a constant and pervasive call to have missionaries rise up and go out to the mission fields. But before we get discouraged, the Lord reminds us also in verse 2 of the title for himself that we should never forget. The title the Lord Jesus gives himself is the Lord of the Harvest. What a beautiful name for our Lord Jesus. What is he reminding us of? That the harvest belongs to him. It's his harvest. Must we always keep that in mind? Also brings back all the joy to the work. Because our job is harvesting what the Lord of the harvest has already gone ahead of us to prepare. The Lord planted. The Lord watered. The Lord caused it to grow. The Lord brought it to full maturity. And now that it's ready for harvesting, the Lord sends those workers, those laborers into the harvest to do what these last three words of verse 2 says. We're sent into his harvest simply to glean the final end product of what he has already done and worked to create. Verse 3, we're cautioned and comforted at the same time that the Lord knows danger is constant. We're comforted that the Lord knows this, and yet we're cautioned that the danger is real. Enemies lurk as we do the Lord's work. Uh, Jesus said, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. One thing Jesus says to his disciples as they go out, these new 72 disciple duo teams, is to be aware of the danger from spiritual wolves. We get this both Old and New Testament. The Lord told Gideon, send thousands of soldiers home. Only take into battle those 300 men who remained aware that we're in a battle. Only the 300 soldiers who would always remember that there's enemies lurking were fit to step onto a battlefield. The soldiers who quickly forgot because they were so interested in uh, slaking their thirst were the ones that were sent home from the front lines. In verse 4, the Lord insists that we remain reliant on him alone. No money bag, no knapsack, 
No sandals, no extra sandals. It shows that in the church's work of missions, we don't depend on budgets. We don't depend on the training. We don't depend on the equipment and the mailings and the podcasts. Uh, We never say, if only we had more money or more people, then we could reach the world for the gospel. We never say that. Instead, we always say, the Father gave his only Son to be the Savior of the world. Therefore, we send missions to the end of the world to announce that news. Whenever we ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest, we ask God to send workers who will always remember how reliant we are on the Lord alone, that all harvesting, that all missions is the Lord's work. And it's the Lord alone who's sufficient for this task. The work of missions is actually showing up and watching God do what only God can do. We can't change hearts, draw people into his kingdom, make them care. Can't even make them listen. We are not doing the Lord's work. The Lord is doing the Lord's work. And he's using us to do so. May every missionary And every sending agency, remember this. We move on to our second point from verses 5 to 15. Why are we to ask the Lord to send out workers? Because only the Lord can give the needed discernment. Discernment is key. He spends these verses explaining how significant and important this discernment is. If, he says to his teams, if the audience is welcoming, you're to say and do these things. But if the audience is unwelcoming, you are to say and do a very different set of things. How do we discern which is the case with this audience? And Jesus then taught in verse 5, to begin with, give them a kind blessing of peace, a shalom sort of greeting. Uh, Verse 6 tells us that the response will be one of two kinds. Either A, this man or woman of peace receives your peace greeting and peace rests on them, and your relationship with them constitutes one of peace or b the man or woman is not that way and your peace will return to you and you will still have peace with the lord but the other person will not share your peace there's a discerning task that the lord gives to his duo teams as they go verses seven and eight show that the lord provided ongoing support to his duo teams through well-placed hosts who welcomed them provided food and drink the hosts were serving the lord just as much as the teams were serving the lord All of them are working for the Lord. Each has a different role. So all of them have the meals provided and whatever else is needed by the Lord himself. Verse 9 shows that the Lord provided authorization for his duo teams to bring kingdom power and bring a message of hope. They could even heal the sick, which was unique to the time of the early apostles, working miracles, and say that there's more offered beyond this physical healing. Please look beyond the physical healing to the very kingdom of God that is here. Notice how that's being announced in verse 9. What are they to say to those who they heal? The kingdom of God has come near you. Beyond the physical healing, the Lord of the harvest has come, not just to bring strength to broken bodies, but also healing to broken souls. Receive the healing of soul now, not just the healing of body. That's the message behind this statement In verse 9, the kingdom of God has come near you. Hang on to that thought. We'll come back to that statement in a moment. It's where discernment is again key. Some will not receive the healing. Some will not receive the message. Some will not receive the Lord's duo team of messengers. What then? Verse 10, the Lord knows all about this before it even happens. 
This is at the initiation and launch of his 72 uh, workers. Lord gave, Jesus gave his duo team specific instructions under those conditions. Here we have it in verse 10. I quote, Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact same quote we saw in, in verse 9. But this time, it comes across as judgment. It comes across as a warning. The kingdom of God has come near you. What you've rejected is something larger than you could imagine. So the discernment to know that the kingdom of God is near, in verse 11, when the Lord is against the towns that reject his duo teams, just as the kingdom of God is near in verse 9, when those towns that receive and are healed by the Lord, so receiving his duo teams is something that describes how the Lord works. Some come to him and some reject him. They're heading for different destinations, you see. I try to illustrate it. A young man went for a job interview. He wanted to work for Western Union back in the days when they would deliver telegrams. And the boy said to the hiring agent, he said, I'm only willing to deliver good news. The boy was not hired for the job. How, how can you have a select sort, set of messages that you will deliver only when a baby is born or somebody's getting engaged, but you won't deliver news that someone passed away? We can't use you at all. And Jesus is sending out his disciples with the same kind of idea. He's saying, you, you bring good news because gospel is inherently good news, but still some will reject it. And rejecting the message, they'll reject you. And that's the job. And when we're sent by the Lord of the harvest, there are some who are harvested. And some who are not harvested, and they reject us. And those who reject us, he says, reject the Lord of the harvest himself. Then we get to verse 12, where he begins to talk about that further. The condemnation from the Lord against them is worse than it was against Sodom. This is getting heavy. <laughs> this is getting severe. Worse than against Sodom. Of course, you know what happened to Sodom. Fire and brimstone came down from heaven and leveled it, and it's still that way. This is what they're rejecting when they're rejecting the message of the gospel sent by his missionaries. Verse 13, he continues, the Lord begins to say, woe to you, and name names. He, he names the, the place Chorazin and the, the place Bethsaida. And the Lord shames them by making observations about how other cities, if they had received such a wonderful message as you have received, as my duo teams would bring, as I myself would bring, those other cities, if they had what you have, they would have responded by repenting in sackcloth and ashes long ago. What a statement. And then in verse 14, the condemnation of the Lord continues. It would be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And as if he's not yet done, verse 15, there's a verdict for any town that would reject his duo teams. They will be, to quote the Lord of the harvest here, quote, brought down to Hades, verse 15 at the end. Brings us to our last point in the last verse, because the one they hear or reject is not us, but the Lord. Remember who's the Lord of the harvest. It's not us. We are simply laborers. We're simply workers. We're those who either support ones who go or the ones who go. So verse 16, Jesus himself, the Lord of the harvest himself, is speaking, and he's speaking to his duo teams, and he's showing them that the discernment has, has to happen, that you can go out as I send you, but there are going to be a mixed reaction. 
And so showing the unity between Jesus and his teams and showing the unity between Jesus and God the Father, he presents the backbone of all the previous instructions with this fitting conclusion. Listen carefully as Jesus says it, verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Quite a passage. May this be kept in mind by every missionary and by every missionary sending agency or person. This is what missions is all about, says the Lord of the harvest. So keep that in mind as we change gears now and talk about our reformer tonight. Uh, Reformation Day, we often think of Luther. Aren't you going to talk about Martin Luther? Aren't you going to tell us about how he nailed the feces on the wall in 1517? Yeah, the Reformation often brings to us the story of Luther to our minds. But tonight we'll study instead the Reformation in England, which happened 200, almost 200 years earlier, during the 1300s. It's still the Middle Ages, or coming up out of the Middle Ages, the me- medieval period. There was confusion about that period. There's some confusion about our pre-reformer tonight, Wycliffe. It's understandable. We actually know very little about the biography of the man, John Wycliffe. We don't even know the date of his birth. We have the year. It is 1320, as is printed on your bulletin. That's about all we know about the, the date, the timing. We know he was raised in northern England, but he only arises out of some foggy medieval mist, wherever he was, whatever happened to him as a young man, we first find out who he is and where he was and when he showed up as a student at Oxford, Oxford University. So he's a student, uh, undergrad. He must have done well and completed the degree program and graduated because then he went on and got a doctorate degree. And in 1372, we know he had his doctorate. And then he stayed at the school and he rose to prominence because he became a leading professor at the same university, Oxford. So that's what we know. All of a sudden, we have this doctor, professor, John Wycliffe at Oxford. But to give you an indication of the large influence of Wycliffe's teaching to move thought from the Dark Ages to the times of the Reformation that would come, Wycliffe actually earned the nickname the Morning Star of the Reformation, meaning the sunrise, meaning the start of the Reformation. Much like other, what I call pre-reformers or other reformers, Wycliffe struggled with this core question. When should we keep attempting to improve the Roman Catholic Church? And when should we decide it's wiser to start a whole new movement? It's kind of like when your car is in the shop. You ask, repair or replace? Or your shoes or your lawnmower? Even your ice trays, if you have them. Repair or replace is really the core question for Wycliffe and the other reformers. I'll give you some examples of things they were facing. What's so troubling about the Roman Catholic Church? One example is the issue called authority. Their basic question is, what right does one human being have to rule over another human being? You could talk about it in the church. You can talk about it in secular government. So let's talk about a few of those briefly. About church. There was at that time a false belief that God entrusted all things on earth to his people through the church as one main leader, the highest bishop of the church, which had its headquarters in Rome, and that leader they were calling the Pope. Authority in the church. Secondly, authority in the government. There's a false belief at that time that authority 
exercised by secular government rulers was not authority from God. This viewpoint held to the authority, the, the position that all authority on earth was mediated from God through the Pope, through the church, to other leaders. Third, there was this belief about authority that only godly people had authority. Some at that time when Wycliffe was living mistakenly thought that authority from God came not so much through the church structure, but rather through the godliness of each of those religious leaders. For example, that if a statesman was a Christian and he was operating as a statesman, let's say he's a noble, let's say he's a king, if he's operating as a godly person in that role, then he had God-authorized authority, lordship over other people who could tell them what to do and make laws. Alternatively, if that leader, whatever his role is in secular government, was himself a wicked man or behaved wickedly in his work as a ruler, then he had no authority from God over other people whatsoever. So you see the confusion that existed in the 1300s into which Wycliffe is born and becomes a professor. So what did Wycliffe believe on these topics? His former teacher at Oxford, the one who had taught John Wycliffe while he was a student, taught Wycliffe that Christianity is required for kings. All secular rulers required, this required of them that they be Christians. So much more should Christianity be required for church officers. So Wycliffe adopted this view. But then he built on that view. He built on it with ideas such as his own developing thoughts. That he believed that the rulers in the secular government had the responsibility from God to correct abuses even within the church so that secular leaders had the power to relieve corrupt church leaders from their positions in the church. Wycliffe went farther. He even believed that the government could seize the property of any corrupt church official, such as a priest or an archbishop or even the pope. Now we've got game. He's at Oxford. He's a professor. He's teaching that the secular government leader could seize the property of the Pope. Let me ask you this. What do you think the Pope thought of Wycliffe's teaching? You see how we have conflict brewing? The Pope officially responded in 1377 by condemning Wycliffe's teaching, especially because Wycliffe was becoming quite the influential mini-pre-reformer from his position at professor at Oxford University. In fact, you know how violent the Roman church was in those days. They might have made a physical move against Wycliffe and killed him at that moment when the Pope condemned officially his teachings in 1377, but they couldn't because Wycliffe had some influential friends across England who saw to it that the Vatican's condemnation of Wycliffe never went beyond words, verbal threats, written things, never got to actual violence. They never were able to arrest him, beat him, or worse. Wycliffe's life was spared because he had strong friends in England. Now, Wycliffe's teaching on the issue of authority that we've covered a minute ago emphasized the spiritual freedom of a righteous man. A Christian was a person possessing an influence over others horizontally, founded only on the grace from God vertically. So Wycliffe wrote this, for example, quote, God gives no lordship to his servants without first giving himself to them. 
So you see though this personal relationship with God, between a man and God, was everything. That character was one sole basis of holding position in an office. As a natural outgrowth or consequence of this belief, you can see how the medieval Roman Catholic Church's priesthood and the need for the mediating priests was no longer seen as essential. You see how that's being broken down by these thoughts? Wycliffe lived at the time when there were two popes in a divided church. One pope lived, of course, in Rome, Italy, and a second pope lived in Avignon, France. The fact that there were two popes and the added fact that the two popes were each excommunicating the other was confirmation to Wycliffe not only that neither pope was truly in authority, but that the very office of a pope had to be wrong. He stated that Christ is the head of his church. Let's get back to that. In fact, Wycliffe's view on the pope intensified further. Wycliffe reached a point in which he believed that both rival popes were the antichrists. It was at this time Wycliffe started to call down judgment of God on the two popes that he actually shifted from wanting to repair the Roman Catholic Church to wanting to replace the Catholic Church. He was committed then to the pre-Reformation, establishing a whole new church, a whole new movement. Over time, Wycliffe seems to be one of the first pre-Reformers to challenge a whole range of dark medieval beliefs and practices. I'll just list some. Indulgences, absolutions, pilgrimages, the worship of images, compulsory confession, the adoration of saints, transubstantiation, treasury of the merits laid up at the reserve of the Pope, the distinction between venial and mortal sins. Uh, what standard did Wycliffe use to challenge all these things to Rome? The Bible alone. Wycliffe said, and I quote, neither the testimony of Augustine or Jerome or any other saint should be accepted, except so far as it's based on Scripture. Wycliffe went on to say, quote, Christ's law is best and enough, and other laws men should not take, but as branches of God's law, end quote. Wycliffe helped the rise out of harmful medieval secrecy in the church and backward Middle Ages mysticism and brought the Bible back to the common person. So how did this affect his relationship to Oxford? How did this affect his relationship to the church? Well, to say it quickly, the chancellor at Oxford condemned Wycliffe's positions and teachings and he forbade Wycliffe to lecture. So his professorship is over. As far as the church, the Archbishop of Canterbury, England, a man at that time named William Courtenay, held a council that specifically condemned 10 of Wycliffe's major teaching points as heretical. By 1382, Wycliffe had been silenced in his own town of Oxford. So, Wycliffe, being about as feisty as the rest of the pre-reformers and reformers that we know, wasn't about to be done. So he turned his full attention to a project of getting the Bible into the language and into the hands of the peasants, the common blue-collar workers across England. Wycliffe wrote this, For as much as the Bible contains Christ, and that is all that is necessary for salvation, it is necessary for all men, not for priests alone, end quote. handful of scholars from Oxford, friends of Wycliffe's, secretly helped him to translate the Latin Bible into English. 
This English Bible became known as Wycliffe's Bible and was distributed illegally. Wycliffe also, and this is our tie-in to our study tonight from Luke 10, he sent out poor priests to the byways and village greens to win the souls of the neglected people. These poor priests of Wycliffe went out just as Jesus' disciples had gone. One robe, no sandals, no purse, long staff in hand, dependent on others for gifts for basic food and shelter while traveling through towns. Soon Wycliffe's poor priests became a force in the land of England. And their enemies called these priests mumblers. And that's where they actually got the name, if you've heard the name. They borrowed it from a Dutch word for mumblers, and it became lollards. L-O-L-L-A-R-D-S. Lollards. Wycliffe and his lollards. It was an insult. What it meant is they're just mumbling because they don't have any authority, they don't have any education, they don't know what they're talking about. They're just mumblers. These guys wandering around villages and mumbling. They're called lollards, Dutch word for mumblers, you see. Each of Wycliffe's poor priests, the mumblers, the lollards, carried a few pages of Wycliffe's Bible because printing was so expensive, printing was unauthorized. They each preached from whatever few pages they had, heralding the word of God throughout the land of England and beyond if they were able. One observer claimed as he traveled through England, Every other person he met was a lollard, a mumbler, a missionary preacher sent out by Wycliffe. They were so pervasive. They were everywhere. How did this all go? Well, one day, happened to be the last day of the year, 1384, Wycliffe was in church, and he suffered a stroke, and he died. December 31st, 1384. How did the Catholic Church respond to that? Immediate relief. However, it wasn't until later that the Catholic Church seemed to realize the impact of what Wycliffe and his Lollards had managed to make. 31 years later, this is hilarious, 1415, 31 years later, a Catholic Church council met at Constance and excommunicated the dead Wycliffe, who had been dead for three decades. Take that! So the domination of the institutionalized Catholicism was disappearing, you see. However, sadly, the Catholic bishops still succeeded in getting a law passed which condemned heretics to death by burning. Guess who they burned? They burned a lot of Wycliffe's poor priests. From one end of England to the other, the Lollards perished as martyrs going up in flames. We're safe to conclude that the Roman Catholic Church was starting to realize the influence that Wycliffe and the Lollards had in unraveling the Roman Catholic Church's previous dominating authority. But listen to this. In 1428, now 44 years after his death, the bones of John Wycliffe were exhumed, which simply means that his body was brought out of the grave. And it was burned. Take that! <laughs> but his ashes were scattered across the river swift. It was really just a demonstration, see? A warning to others. But it was too late. People were on fire for Christ and his mission. For 44 years before the Catholic Church seemed to fully realize it, in the hearts and minds of Lollard priests, 
in the hearts and minds of the hearers, of the common person who got his hands on a couple pages of the Word of God, the Protestant Reformation was already quietly underway. Full 137 years after the death of Wycliffe, at the Diet of Worms in Germany in 1521, 137 years after his death, the spokesman, the man named Eck, said to Luther, quote, Martin, you do nothing but renew the errors of Wycliffe. And that happened, that was stated right before Luther's famous reply, I cannot recant, here I stand. It's in the same breath, same paragraphs. What about today before we close? 1934? 1934. A man named Cameron Townsend founded an organization to translate the Bible into every remaining language of the world. Do you know what he decided to call it? Wycliffe Bible Translators. 1934, they developed SIL, Summer Institute of Linguistics, to train men and women to learn and to translate languages of tribes that had never had their language written down ever. These workers talked to the tribes until they learned their language verbally. They decoded the language, wrote it down for them, translated the Bible into their language, and then taught the tribes to learn to read their own language, which hadn't even been written before, so that they could read God's gracious message of his gospel to them. This has always resulted in amazing church growth in such areas. By 1994, Wycliffe Bible translators had more than 5,200 missionaries worldwide and $90 million income per year for their worldwide work. In that year, they were working in 900 languages, of which approximately 400 had already been completed for a full Bible. Over 18,000 people had received this linguistics training. That's our story. We looked at Luke 10 tonight. We reminded ourselves of the story of God through Wycliffe. I just conclude with this. Pray for the Lord to send workers. Be willing to say, here am I, Lord. Send me. Will you send your children? Will you send your grandchildren? Will you go? pray. Father, how we thank you for preserving as true your church.